On Rebuilders this week, we return to talking about discipling the contemporary self. Part two. Yes, part two. We are digging into what does it look like to try and disciple people today to build community, how to do that in an environment shaped by the social context of neoliberalism. What is that? It's a big word, but I think our explanation will help you understand the water you're swimming in and how do we create discipleship communities in the midst of that. Yeah, it's a great episode. If you want to grab a list of the books and articles that were referred to in the episode, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both? Stella. Yeah. Yeah. Do you try to come up with a different word? Every time. Look, I don't contribute heaps to this. Um, uh, Tony, come audio. on, man. I think you actually do. Oh, behind the scenes, sure. But in yeah. terms of the microphone. So I just try and, I try and mix it up each week. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yep. What about you, Mark? Are you going to say good or? Um, I, I just would like to make an apology. Oh, okay. Um, last week um, we talked about um, the UAP phenomenon. Yes. And um, some of the strange things around um, the Academy to the Stars and Tom DeLong's Blink-102 thing and yeah. some of the connections to different intelligence agencies. And um, I received a, a visit um, the other night and um, from some really nice men and I would like to retract everything I said and there's there's nothing dodgy and and maybe they are UFOs. Okay. Yeah. What do these men look like, Mark? Well, they're sort of wearing black. They were, they were sort of men in black. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, they were very strange. And were they I galaxy th- defenders? I can't really remember. He just held up this thing in front of my face ah. and just everything's a blur after that. But I, I think my Was name's Mark. Will and, and yeah. Tommy? They didn't, they didn't introduce <laughs> themselves. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, they just appeared at about 10.30 p.m. and drove off and... Blaring uh, all mm. the small things as they yeah. drive away. Well, let's yeah. do another episode next week on mm. <laughs> on the true facts. Mm. 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 Uh, yeah, so today we're going to continue with Discipling the Contemporary Self Part 2 mm. and we're going to start with some concepts that you're going to flesh out a little bit, Mark. And we as a church local here um, at Red Church, um, you've been preaching through a series alongside uh, Brit. Uh, one of the pastors here and, uh, yeah, looking at these these notions as well. Mm. So we've been exploring them um, locally mm. but uh, helpful to take another um, yeah. perspective on it as leaders. Yeah. yeah, and probably also for leaders listening, you know, you can also see how we often will, you know, think about this stuff and talk about it and rebuilders and then try and actually put it into yeah. like we don't present it like this per se, you know, put it into sort of sermon focus and teaching focus. Um, but where we started a couple of weeks ago is we talked about really the context that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And you know, I talked about the concept of neoliberalism, which is really the overarching ideology that we have lived in. Um, in many ways, it actually you know, uh, is an overarching philosophy behind much of both the left and the right. Um, yes. It has a high emphasis on the market determining things. People move from being a citizen to a consumer. Um, has a high value on individualism. Um, high value on globalization and the world being cosmopolitan and connection and and having this world of experiences where the world is transformed from a place where you have commitments uh, to necessarily you know place or 
that group or whatever mm. and you can recreate yourself um, however you want um, almost like a personal marketing brand and so we talked about that being the context because this has a definite um, you know effect upon our discipleship mm. this is the, the the environment which we we live and one place I wanted to start was um, uh, the concept of um, how we understand our spaces yes. And I think I talked last time uh, in our first part of this about uh, John Wesley and his sort of ecosystem of discipleship. Mm. And, you know, I talked about you know, going in East London and and in Melbourne. I know there's similar things in places like Bristol where, you know, you go to Wesley's church and you see sort of set, set out in stone not only the congregation, the Sunday service, but also these other rooms for classes, Sunday schools, you know, different places where they interacted with the poor. Mm-hmm. And you saw that it was this whole different size group, social social institutions um, and it's interesting like one of the ways that we explain this on Sunday so I thought how do I how do I explain this to our people so yeah. I, I took you know you don't want to just get up there and go okay neoliberalism blah 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 you know like I didn't even use the word neoliberalism you know but I talked about I got on stage three different stools yes and I talked about three phases that we've lived in the first phase you know I talked about which is us preaching off the calling of the disciples and mm-hmm. um, when uh, by the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are called and um, there's that classic sort of line it talks about putting down their nets yes. and um, Father Zebedee yeah. um, sitting in the, in the, in the boat as the, as the disciples wander off into this new call of discipleship. And in many ways the first seat represents the sort of social space in which social environment which people have lived throughout most of history which is deeply connected to land, people, um, tribe, mm. um, religion, practice belief, that's who defined you. You didn't really ask the question of who am I? Yes. Um, you know, and I jokingly said on Sunday that was the Derek Zoolander question, who am I? <laughs> um, you didn't ask that because you lived in a world which was rich with meaning, not a whole lot of personal freedom, but yeah. stacks of, of meaning and you were very clearly communicated who you were by the outside things around you. Um, and then the second seat was individualism. We understand this. So, you know, you see the shift, particularly in Europe, from a feudal world. Yep where again, you lived on a land, you were part of this great chain of being, there was mm. a hierarchy. And then all of a sudden the industrial revolution began to change things and people moved to cities. Yep. They changed their their role, their job. And um, you know, in many ways, the church had to adapt to this new reality. People were no longer part of parishes. Yes. Uh, Wesley famously said, the world is my parish. And um, you know, he, I think, instinctively understood that at the beginnings of globalization and a market economy, this is the beginnings of modernity, that there was tremendous freedom. There was tremendous freedom for people, for individuals. Um, you, know, you began to see men and women and interacting in different ways, women having more freedom. And so his creation of a, a discipleship ecosystem was to create these particular new kinds of second spaces where yes. it wasn't just the service, the church service on a Sunday. At the beginning of the Methodist movement, he was actually encouraging people to still to go to the Anglican churches or whatever, but then come to these second spaces midweek, be they a class, a band, a society, which are all different levels mm-hmm. of, of size groups and, and how they disciple people. And um, that's where the real work happened, the work of sanctification, of discipleship, of, of yeah. people pressing in. And um, it was really interesting because, you know, at the core of that was this concept of discipline. Mm. And um, it was really an understanding that the world was slowly beginning to secularize. So cultural Christianity of just everyone turning up to the parish church wasn't happening with this new, you know, tumulting culture and the big structures of culture changing. So it was a second space where those who wanted to go deeper could go. Mm. Part of the problem we had was um, how do you determine 
those who want to go deeper and those who just want to come to something because, hey, we're looking for social connection or whatever. And so, you know, Wesley had some quite interesting um, sort of disciplinary med- methods, like he had tickets that you could get to to go to these societies. And a lot of what Wesley's work was was going around and and making sure that that level of discipline, of that sec- sort of a higher bar yes. uh, level Christianity, you know, was, was happening. And this caused tension within the Methodists. Like there were people who complained against this and sort of felt it was heavy-handed. Others who have written that this was really the core driving uh, of the movement to have almost a remnant, uh, you know, how I see it and I've thought about it, it's almost like a, a it's creating a remnant structure mm. within a, a changing social situation, yeah. which there's also the reality of cultural Christians around. Um, now, many people have adapted Wesley's methods. We think of midweek groups like small groups mm-hmm. um, and Bible studies or growth groups, connect groups, whatever the heck your your sort of church background calls it. But also this was mirroring other things that happened in other parts of the culture. You saw at this time in the 18th century the rise of societies like the you know the Royal Society Science and mm. uh, you saw different clubs and coffee houses around different interests. You saw the rise of the Masonic Lodge in, in Edinburgh. Yep. Um, you know, these groupings, uh, also the rise of trade unionism, um, guilds, all this sort of stuff, you know, was, was popular. These second spaces where in this new era of personal freedom, people could connect in these places. Um, also the rise too of um, sort of, you know, companies and corporations, mm. interestingly. Um, so we take that today and we have small groups. But part of the problem that we're hearing everywhere, and I think we mentioned this last week, is this greater sense of, Fear of commitment, Yep. people being busier and busier, people coming to church less and less. Um, so the committed people coming, you know, every couple of weeks. And with COVID, people said, you know, that's even intensified after COVID that people come every two weeks and now coming every four weeks and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you've almost got this, this sort of diffusion happening and something clearly is happening, but I think very few people have named it. So normally that's how we talk about it, the two seats, the old world, the new world, but I added a third seat. Yep. And the third seat was, I didn't say this per se, but really the, cer- the third seat is the neoliberal environment in which we find ourselves in. And I think what neo- a couple of people ask me, you know, how's it different to capitalism or individualism? It's an intensification. Mm. Whereas I think the first wave of, you know, modernity, you know, when Wesley was living at the beginning of that, the first wave of individualism, people found what Ulrich Beck calls these surrogate structures. They didn't have their village. They didn't have their tribal group. They didn't have their people group. They didn't have their that land on which they were used to. But they went to the city and and they created these surrogate groups. What the difference between the second seat and the third seat, between individualism and the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism is that you define yourself by breaking away from even the surrogate yes, communities. Okay. Um, so... You know, if if the first seat was arranged marriage, the second seat is marriage by choice. The third seat is maybe not getting married, or if you're married, continually going through choice anxiety about yes. doing the right thing or comparing yourself to other people's marriages or whatever. Yeah, there's this sense where the first seat you had a lot of meaning, not a whole lot of freedom. The second seat you had some freedom, and still you had to create some meaning. But the, the third seat is 
stacks and stacks of freedom, but you're constantly faced with the burden of creating a life of meaning through your own hand. Yeah. So it places tremendous pressure on the individual. And I think what it does is if you think about it, if it's moving from the sort of social structures of surrogate communities, you're now finding yourself in absolute atomization. Yes. So this is what we've talked about. We talked about last week in a geopolitical context, I think you brought up of atomization, fragmentation, we're seeing in the world of a network society. So we talked about that, that concept of, of networks before where they come together and sort of form hubs, but then they break apart. Yeah. So you can imagine if it went from a big hub of the first you know, feudal society yeah, yeah. to a second smaller competing hubs of surrogate societies. Now it's just like tiny nodule, uh, nodes in, in the network. That's what yeah. people are becoming. We're connected like in a network, but there's no centrifugal. Is, is, I always get centrifugal and centripetal wrong. It's like the energy goes in, in and energy goes out. We'll get a fact check on that, Daniel. Um, centrifugal is uh, move away. <clears throat> so centripetal is, is come in. So the, the centripetal is replaced by the centrifugal, the going out. And, and this is atomization. So what this means is what, what is swapped is a desire for, you know, or a, a commitment to, to meeting with others for a communal purpose, a sacrificial sense of, mm. of giving up for the bigger good. There was still some of that in the, in the second seat in, in yes. modernity, early modernity. People would come together for political movements or trade unions or societies to improve this or whatever. Um, or even just to connect with others, realizing that in order to connect with others, they had to sacrifice some of their freedom. Yes. But what happens is I think in the sort of neoliberal environment is that people then swap all that out and what we're told to pursue is experience, excitement and stimulation. And this means that this this energy is not like like you think about that that centra centripetal that that moving in creates a kind of focus and force where you can achieve things, and you know this is why I preached on this series is called following his focus to follow Jesus you actually need to focus upon him mm. when the disciples said yes we're going to follow you they had to say no to a bunch of things in order to say yes to a bigger thing. What our world tells us today is you don't really have to say no to anything you can just keep choosing like yeah. the 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 Netflix. You know, uh, choices just keep expanding. The the options in the store keep growing. The 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 the, the, the it, it, what do they call it on the phone when like there's a, there's a there's I reckon there was a structural change in the world when websites went from a static page mm-hmm. to one where you could just keep like forever mindless scrolling. What's it called? Infinity a feed or yeah, infinity fe- yeah, yeah feeds yeah, what we know yeah, it is yeah yeah. Mm. yeah. So you can just keep scrolling where there was a point before you got to the end of the website and you're like, okay, I've, I've looked at everything here. Now Instagram mm. or whatever. And that was the same with like MySpace to Facebook when that mm. happened. Yeah, MySpace is like, oh, here's my profile page and I can kind Static, of- Static and there was and then sort you of links to, off it. but Yeah. And then your Facebook suddenly, it wasn't just a profile page. It was like a feed now of like what yes. are people saying and doing. And yeah. Yeah. I, really, I remember that shift and, yes. mm. and it being a really compelling thing. Yes. Because the internet yes. suddenly became interesting and like- yeah. yes. Sit here and do stuff for a while yeah. now, not just look at a page and disappear after five minutes. Yes. And really, what they was doing was like offering a stimulation and stealing our attention. Mm. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's a good argument to be made that, sort of, in a sense, the like ADHD is a very real thing, but we've almost got a kind of cultural ADHD now yeah. where mm. you're constantly stimulated and it's the exhaustion of looking at too much. Yeah. Boredom yeah. is almost unknown now mm. because you just pull out your phone. So, bringing this into a discipleship. Context. I don't think people have thought about this in a discipleship context. Some people may have thought about it in terms of like, how do we 
preach the gospel today in a competing marketplace of ideas. Sure. But what does it mean for someone who says, yeah, I've said yes to Jesus, I want to follow him, but their cultural programming is, well, that must be done through chasing experience, excitement, and stimulation. Mm. Now, are there moments which are thrilling in, in following Jesus? Yes. Are there moments which are true experiences? Absolutely. But if that's all you're looking for, what that starts to do is it starts to undermine the social spaces in which we grow the most. Yeah. So Wesley's realization, and I think you can go back to multiple movements at different times, you know, renewal movements, could be the Benedictines and the creation of the monasteries, you know, in the, in the dark ages, um, uh, that those spaces where we grow the most with other people who want to like go deep together, iron sharpening iron, accountability, you know, hearing the gospel, growing the gospel, um, you know, learning how to live the kingdom out with others. That happens in a kind of social space. The problem is the time in which we live thoroughly undermines that social space. Mm. Now, what it doesn't undermine is the potential of a worship service which offers stimulation, entertainment, and experience. So think of what you've seen in the growth in the church is you've seen a growth of um, these kinds of spaces where the pressure is to have better worship, mm. more lights, you know, more things, make that conference bigger. So conferences uh, and, and services have actually become so much more sophisticated in how we, we do that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, mm. but there's been at the same time, I think, a weakening of the second spaces of discipleship because we haven't realized that, that in many ways that's where the real battle is um, in discipling people. I have more to say, but I'll stop there if you guys have questions because I need to take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel? Yeah, I was just going to maybe you'll, you'll get to this, but one of the examples you used, uh, visuals, I think it was in the second um uh, second term message you did it was the vapor versus um yeah. what was the kind of opposite well, well like, yeah and well, you kind of had an example of like mist you had like a squirty bottle mm. and a, like a spray mist versus yeah. like a water jet yeah type of thing mm. uh, that really stuck out to me mm. um and i think you see that in the cult, like in that third seat mm. where it is like there's so many things like your life is so atomized which we have talked about before mm. yeah and it's just kind of this mist that yeah anyway uh, yeah yeah so effectively I, I used the metaphor and thanks to Lydia who provided her very stylish um, spray bottle <laughs> the one uh, I used to get my cat off the bench <laughs> yes very effective um so you know, water that's shot as a, at a jet at a high enough rate can cut through concrete mm. or over a very long period of time can erode mm. a mountain. Mm. So water with focus can do incredible things and humans with focus can do incredible things. And I think we created in the garden to have focus to, to do things with others. You know, the people of God are people who come together worshipping one God mm. who then have like one focus to, you know, be the embassy of the kingdom of God in the world. But I think the, the sort of social model of what we have now is when you're just chasing stimulation, when you're just chasing experience, when you're just encouraged to scroll, uh, and I don't just mean sitting on your phone. I'm talking about an overarching ideological approach to the world. Um, it's not even ideological. It's actually more phenomenological. It's, it's the lived. Um, when you do that, you, you just are spray. So I just sprayed it. A spray, you can spray in the air. You can feel it for a second. It's pleasant mm. for a moment on your face, but then it disappears. And actually, interestingly, if you look at scriptures, uh, the scriptures, you know, as, uh, Ecclesiastes speaks of a negative life as a kind of vapor. Mm. 
Yes. You know, Hibal, uh, Hival, uh, I think is the Hebrew word, which actually is a play off Abel, Cain uh, mm. and Abel. And Abel's life is tragic. It's there. It's, it's fleeting. It's, it's there for a moment. And so the, the model of life today is to have this high intense life. Now, this is, this, this is the, this is what neoliberalism does. Yeah. If your life is pointed towards the ends of those who want to sell things and experiences and to continually do that to drive the neoliberal economic machine, you are going to end up as an, at an end point of just living this intense life that ultimately is ultimately very dissatisfying because you end up being vapor. You end up yeah. living an Ecclesiastes life <laughs> in the way that you shouldn't. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think that is a powerful metaphor. Mm. Um, uh, and particularly when you think about it as in the sense of discipleship and of following Jesus as well, not just the way you live your life, but, yeah, is it a scattered missed yeah. thing or is it mm. a focus? Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think in, for personal reflection, when hearing that was a really kind of like, oh, like fast forward 50, 60 years, whenever yes. I leave this earth, mm. will there actually be anything mm. left behind from the way I followed Jesus mm. or will it have just been a, mm. yeah, it's like it a bit of a confronting kind of metaphor. Um, and even in movements, you think about, you know, movements can be very vapor-like at yeah. this moment, like something's yes. the big thing. You know, we've all thought about that, that big person. You know, you think about some of the Christian greats of the past, they live a whole life. People now have like a five-year frame of Christian celebrity and the next yeah. big thing and they disappear. That church is big and it's gone, that movement, that worship band. Like like we're heading into this very vapor-like moment. And um, I, think it was, I think it was Larry Osborne um, who wrote Sticky Church. Can we get a fact mm. check on that? But um. I think it's in that book. He, he made a comment that church in a sense is what he's saying is a lot easier and church movements are – is that – Correct. Yep. Get that right? yep. Yeah. Church, church. He says something like this. I'm paraphrasing. I honestly read this like 10 years ago, I think. Um, he, he said, when you've got two things, you've got cultures which have high authority and respect for authority. So yeah. a leader says to do something. Like Yonghee Cho had the biggest church in the world in, in South Korea. And basically, what that is, they had their small groups, their second spaces. They would put an empty seat. And he said, every group needs to pray for that seat to be filled. And then once it's filled, you do another empty seat and pray till it's filled. Churches grew. But that's also because you had in South Korean culture a high authority yes. thing mm. where people literally would do that. Like the leader says that everyone does it. Yeah. The second thing he said is that when you've got very strong social ties. So there are cultures where if uncle becomes a Christian – everyone's going to probably trudge along to that church and see what's happening. Yes. Or, you know, uh, people are committed to others. They're going to walk together for ages with people. And, you know, I remember talking to someone, you know, talking about planting in the Philippines in city blocks where people sort of live in the one city block for, for a long period of their lives. It may not be that like that now. But, you know, these deep connected uh, social bind. Now, you go back to those three chairs. The first one had deep social connections, yeah. strong ties. Second one, loosening ties. Now, you know, like like <laughs> – tiny thread-like ties. Mm. Yes. Um, so we live in a culture which is low authority and low ties mm. and that makes it really difficult. So that doesn't just make it difficult to live a life of discipleship. That makes it really difficult for discipleship movements. So discipleship inevitably is um, countercultural. Um, just a thing too on, the, on second spaces, um, the thing that I realised about second spaces is Michael J, and I wrote about this in um, – Oh, 
What's my book called? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Strange Days. Um, mm. I read about in Strange Days, Marc Auger, the French philosopher, wrote about non-places. And non-places mm. were the places of neoliberalism. This was the mall, the airport, lounge, the places where you stand in them and you're like, what country am I in? What is this? They're oh, designed yeah, yeah. for consumerism. They all look the same, same aesthetics. Yeah. You could be anywhere. They're places but they're not places. Yeah. They have no story. They've got one sort of meta story. It's the Uniqlo store or, you know, it's like – um, you know, and I gave the example that I bought a shirt in a Uniqlo store, but I couldn't remember which one in the world I was in because yeah. I've been in a they're few all, traveling. Yeah. They're all the same, you know. Um, and Starbucks or something, you know, it's like McDonald's, they're, they're you know, they're non-places. And I think that there's a danger that our church service first spaces in a neoliberal world become non-places. Hmm. Yeah. Now, now, maybe they need to be. So I don't want to be on this big beat up here and like, you know, rail at a contemporary church because it's a very easy target. A lot of people do it, you know, without a whole lot of constructivism around it. So may, maybe that sort of the non-place in some ways is a, as a sort of like place for people to enter into church. But if you haven't got a second space, if all you've got is a non-place, yes, there's going to be very little discipleship. And and I wonder if what COVID did as well is is what COVID is revealing with people not coming back and, and people realizing the levels of cultural Christianity and stuff like the Connected Generation report that came out of Barna, talk about habitual Christians and, and resilient disciples, which we've spoken about on here before, is what it revealed is our lack of second spaces. Mm. So in some ways, just as Wesley was innovative and creative in coming up with what are second spaces for emerging modernity in 18th century uh, uh, England, um, I think we're at a task where people need to look at what is the solution to this now. Hmm. So can I just reflect back what I'm potentially hearing you say? Is it so the second spaces are vitally important to um, like a vehicle for discipleship? Yes. At the moment there are many Sunday services that are looking like non-spaces. Would you say that that's because they're kind of, have become devoid of uh, a, a anchoring narrative or, you know, because you use the the example of the Uniqlo store and sort of have said that there's no uh, kind of connected mm. m- meaning or um, anchoring point there. Mm. Yeah, what does that mm. mean for the for the That's Sunday a great service? question. I think sometimes there might be a... a- and now, like you, you can go to a concert, right? And mm. you probably had this experience. You go to a concert in the city, and you're in the concert. And there's all the fans there, and the music, and the songs. There's narratives around those strong songs, around the artist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then the lights come on, and everyone leaves, and it's like the whole story heads out the door. Yeah. And you're there in the tennis center or wherever it is, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I know this place. Like there was basketball here last week. Like that's a bit like a non-place. So. Mm. There's nothing where well, you go to other places, historical places or older churches and you're like, wow, this is connected to this land in this place. And yes. the story goes on even when you're the only one in the building. Yeah. Um, so part of me wonders as well is it's like I think part of it is reflecting the culture. Yes. So in a sense we've been, a, you know, the, what's happened in the concert has affected the church and there's an element with that's missiology. That's reflecting what people are used to and, and, mm. uh, and there's elements I don't have a problem with that. But I think if that's – if we're trying to do our attraction, our discipleship, preaching the gospel, but sanctification all in one place that operates like a non-place. Yes. 
it doesn't you're not working. And I think what's happening is people go, people may be listening to this going, yeah, but we've got small groups of people's houses. But people are so formed by neoliberalism, so formed by the non-place that then what is what I think is happening in and this is not everywhere, and I'm painting with gigantic, gigantic brush strokes here. <laughs> um, and remember, talking to people in lots of different countries on this podcast. So there's lots of nuance, but I think there's some big points to be made. That people are so shaped by a sense, I think what's happening is we're getting to the end of neoliberalism in some ways, and people are sensing increasingly its its flaws. There's a return of tribalism. There's a return of people wanting stories. Mm. So the, you see the return of stuff. We talked last week about the return of the Cold War. You know, we're seeing this sort of stuff. But they have no idea. So they want community but have absolutely no idea how to get it. Yes, so what okay. they do is they pursue community. They want strong ties, mm. but they pursue it through a framework of neoliberalism. Yeah, okay. Mm. So I want to become friends with you guys, but I want it to feel amazing and I want to have incredible moments and um, I just want it to be stimulating and wonderful. And maybe we go and do something cool. We go and have some cool thing at some cool place. We go to a concert. But then the next time it's just sitting around, it's not exciting for me and I yes. back away because I'm just after the the stimuli. Yes. And, and the stimuli leaves you in this place where you never grow. Yes. So, so or like I'm, I'm just thinking of another yeah. example of, you know, when there's relational conflict yes. rather than sticking around yes. to, to nut that out and, and work mm-hmm. on it. It's like, oh, this isn't what friendship or relationships were supposed to be. 100%. Because neoliberalism is built on good feelings. Yeah. And Byung-Chul Han says, um, I think it's in his book, The Disappearance of Ritual, he says that basically the market – can can endlessly mine your emotions. Like emotions are, uh, uh, what's the word? A, um, a, a non like a, it's a resource that inexhaustible resource. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and so what's happening is that in a sense, there's only so much physical stuff we can buy. But I think what's happened in our world is neoliberalism realized that it can endlessly. Um, eat away at our emotions. Now I think yeah. about when I, you know, I started writing about consumerism 15 years ago and back then it was like, hey, don't go every Saturday to the mall and buy a new pair of sneakers. And I feel like that's what was being, you know, like like that was how people were being exploited. But I think now it's you're sitting online, you're reacting to that story, you have that feeling. It's like so much deeper and mental now. It's like a psychological yes. phenomenon. Mm. Yes, people buy physical things but increasingly it's attention you know Mm. like you think about it like we know consumerism is buying their sneakers or buying that new car or buying that whatever but we don't think about the fact that even when i read an article in the paper on a free website and i see ads i'm part of the process even though i didn't buy anything nothing came out of my pocket but 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 attention now is a commodity yes Hmm. could you just unpack a little bit more the second space because i suppose my fear is that people will go oh okay we just need to create more programs and to connect people into yes the second space yes um yeah what like is there something around like even quality versus quantity and mm. this kind of thing so we did talk about minutes um yes, yes. We the about other it. week yeah yeah uh, which is basically for those who need a recap um after our incursion into unidentified <laughs> flying objects last week um is <laughs> Yeah, you know, I heard something about actually. I mean, I think I give it fuller. It was about the World Cup, and I was talking about how different nations who do well at the World Cup have a certain amount of minutes that their junior players get on the ball in pressure situations 
et cetera, when they're young. And those minutes create a, create a quality player. So they can actually calculate them, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that from a discipleship concept. I also thought about it from a community concept, I think, since we recorded. Mm-hmm. Like what people want today is I want community, I want connection, I want good relationships, but I'm not going to spend any minutes. Like relationships not as a, an event because mm. we're so event-driven. Relationships not an event. It's built on minutes of time. You know, I mean, you think about, you know, all the time we guys, we've spent, us us three from the pandemic, like in the pandemic, we were building minutes because you guys, apart from my family, because the broadcast stuff were you know, some of the only <laughs> people I saw. Yeah. So there's an element that when you spend time with each other, and I think as you said, Liddy, it's in the good times, it's also in the bad times. And yeah. and when you build minutes, that builds social capital, relational capital with each other. Mm. Um, but it's the same with discipleship. But I think the difference is if I'm in a, if I'm in a service, right, and it's like, wow, that that amazing worship, that was fantastic. That was a really interesting sermon. Gee, she was really funny. That was a great story. Did you see that you know, illustration he gave? That was an amazing video. All that stuff's good, so I'm not saying that's bad. But is it the kind of discipleship minutes which is like, hey, I stuffed up again this week, guys. Can you pray for me? Or, whoa, my flesh is being mm. really got at by that. Yeah. That, that thing again. And then getting asked about it the next week. Or me going, actually... I'm going to sit and, and, and sit at the feet of this person who is actually further ahead of me in the discipleship journey. Mm. You know, that's when I think the maximum growth often happens. Yeah. And that's where the word discipline comes in. And I think this is where it's really difficult because Wesley introduced discipline and, and discipline actually means to learn to follow someone. Discipline and discipleship uh, are yeah. linked. But we live in this time where, you know, there's this very important conversation happening around abuse and spiritual abuse, which is hugely important. But it's also happening at the same time where we live in a neoliberal reality where people want zero discipline. <laughs> they don't want their flesh to enter into any kind of pushback because neoliberalism set them up to just constantly engage their flesh. So any discipleship programs will often seem completely alien and even troubling to them. Mm. Um because of the neoliberal environment, which sort of goes into the question we got, I think, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we need to. We, I don't know if we asked. Did we ask? We never asked permission whether this person wanted their name. So maybe we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll err on the side of caution and not share their name. But if you want to s- share the essence of, this, of the question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he leads in a, uh, in a house church movement. Yeah, um, in the US, spent 15 years discipling and training leaders, um, and agree that the personal disciple making in the West is getting harder. Um, in the last seven years, that dynamic, uh, where people are, dis- are discipled for a few years and then turn on the people who have worked with them, is getting more and more common, which I thought we spoke about. Yeah, um, and we're hearing the same thing from pastors all over the country. Mm. Um, and goes on to say, I worry that in the face of this sort of cultural opposition that many are going to back away from apprenticing young believers um, yeah. to pass on the essential spiritual knowledge you talked about. Um, yeah, love some further thoughts if he's. Well, thank you, person who sent that in. And again, we would be happy to share your name, but we're just going to err on the side of caution because <laughs> sometimes people don't like us to share their name and we didn't check with you. But um, I think it's a fantastic question, and I've heard this question many, many times. Mm. Yeah. And I'm hearing this everywhere, as I mentioned the other week. I think there's a few things at play. Number one is what we've just said. People hear discipleship and go, oh, wow, disciple-making journey, that sounds fantastic. And yeah. they're, they're in their mind have a group of 
goals that are neoliberal excitement, experience, stimulation, and mm. when it gets hard, as you were saying, Lydia, bad feelings <laughs> relationally mm. come up. Yeah. Bad feelings is wrong. Yeah. And I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, I reckon when I was sort of like doing this 10, 15 years ago, bad feelings was just like catch you later, I'm, I'm down the pub. Now it's bad feelings mean you're doing something bad. Yes. And you need to be held to account. Yeah. And this is actually wrong. Whereas in the past to be like, I'm out of here. Now it's that there's that dynamic. Mm. Um, so that that's one. There was a really um, interesting um, article. Oh, I'll come back to that in a second. The, uh, the other thing is um, Christopher Lash in his book, The Culture of Narcissism, um, which I think is a very prescient book. Um, he, he talked about the fact that he argued that culture is – not just narcissistic as in a metaphor. His argument was that literally the psychological diagnosis of, of narcissism was everywhere. Yeah. And it's very hard to disciple a narcissist. Yep. <laughs> and if Lash is right, a lot of people who are going to come across your path are actually narcissists. Mm. And so the attention's on them. And for them then to enter into the process of discipleship where you have to follow Jesus and die to yourself, the flesh is crucified, uh, you know, with Jesus on the cross and then you're walking that out and it's just like, oh, my goodness. Like for someone who is in a, is a narcissist, if Lash is right, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not sure, but if he, I think it's a good chance he may be right, um, that means discipleship relationships unless a narcissistic comes in and is, is smashed by the gospel and fully gives their life to Christ can change but someone who doesn't it's going to be bad news mm, <laughs> yeah and so there's a huge amount of um, and again to coming back to what we just talked about that then will be spun so a narcissist um, you know we, we were talking about I mean we won't we won't say the um, the example today but we were just talk about thing not in the church not Christian people as we know it, but a, a well-known politician and their staffer and the staff is now angry at the politician and there's an element where we were talking this before, Lydia, and you are mm. like, oh, is that because the person under them you who's know, now sort of complaining about having to work long hours during yes. the campaign, which yeah. has always sort of been the go in, in political campaigns, is expected of chief, chief of staffs, you know, sort of celebrated on shows like The West Wing, you know, that they never go home. Uh, but this person was saying, you know, this was sort of like, you know, really difficult and almost abusive mm. um, was, uh, you know, you were saying, well, has that person got a platform? You know, so there's an yeah. element now where leveraging that relationship also can feed something in in the person who who's in that place. So is that everyone? Probably not. That's, that's one reading. There was another interesting article that uh, I came across uh, this week. Um, I'm just recalling it here. Uh, basically about you've heard of the great resignation. You've heard of quiet quitting. What this article uh, uh, wrote in one of the Australian uh, uh, papers was, I'll just read the first bit. Are we entering our resentism era? Resentism era? Yeah, me, I think resentism. That's it. Resentism era. Yeah. It says this. First came the great resignation and quiet quitting. Now the workplace is battling resentianism. Resentism, a workplace phenomenon that causes serious disruption and risk tearing teams apart. 
Basically, it's talking about um, comes off the back of COVID-19, inducing trends like the great resignation, quiet quitting. Um, so basically, it's almost like people have come back and after two years of COVID or a year and a half, whatever it looked like in your country, all these resentments are coming to the surface. Yeah. So there's a deep amount of resentment and, you know, it's just bubbling over. So resent people don't know how to process this resentment. And maybe too when there's looser ties and people are willing to just get up and move on or turn on relationships, those resentments aren't worked through mm. in, in a safer re- like relational web. They're actually um, um, just explode. Uh, we can put that article in the um, yeah. uh, subscriber notes. So it, I think this, this email uh, – uh, question is is spot on the money. Mm, mm. Um, it's going to become harder. But I think what we need to do is note what Jesus did. Jesus often told parables yep. to the crowd and then saw who then came and asked the follow-up questions. And the disciples he asked to follow him, but there was a significant cost to following him. There was a bar uh, and they had to leave behind their nets. Mm. And I think there was an element where, you know, you look at Peter, you know, he's got an ego. <laughs> Maybe he was a narcissist. Um, but he went on this incredible process. Um, so I wonder if it's our second space discipleship places, whatever they look like in our context. And I think it's, it's, we've gotten stuck on how many people, where does it meet, what what stuff do they do, what what material. It's more at the place of, what is the gateway into those second spaces? What sort of people do we let enter into them? Mm. Does every man and their dog who just fills out a form and, and wants to come because, hey, I want to fit into your church? And we get that question all the time. Come to your church. I want to fit in. So get me in a small group because that's going to help me meet people. Um, that's, a, that's a benefit of a second space to solve your community, but it's not the primary thing. Mm. Yeah. Like because we live in a neoliberal environment where the social fabric is just fraying, we're not just here to provide community. We're here to provide a community centered around Christ yeah. in which we're all on a journey to becoming more like him. Now, can we provide community to people outside the church? Absolutely. But it's really, really hard to provide community to Christians who don't fully want to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And God, like, God, God <laughs> uh, like there's, Scripture, I think Proverbs like talks about like, God resists the proud. Yes. Mm. Um, and so it's I think it's actually really hard for God to work with mm. someone pr- prideful. Mm. Um, doesn't if your heart is closed towards him or close mm. and even like I was thinking the that third stool of the yeah. um like it's it's not just narcissism, it's just the whole like I'm just everything's geared inward mm. about myself and and it's it's you're most, you've become your own God in a way. Yes. And so God doesn't, like who's got the throne of mm. or the seat of your heart? Mm. Um, uh, and that's yeah, invitation for Jesus to reveal mm. himself, mm. his spirit to do a deeper work, mm. um, which I'm hopeful for. Mm. I can't remember if I mentioned it to, I think I did two weeks ago, that reading Wesley's diaries, you realise that he would talk about you know, I went and spoke in Newcastle to 22,000 people and that's always what's always celebrated about the Great Awakening, all these big crowds that came to hear people. Mm. But then he talks about, oh, but we had 80 people in the society 
And yeah. you know, if you said that, if you went to some church and like, oh no, we've got 300 people, we've got 500 people, whatever, 800 people, but we've got 10 people in a small group, second space discipleship group, you'd be like, mate, what are you doing wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. But actually maybe that's, that's and, I, and I think that that's what Wesley did brilliantly. Ralph went to write a famous essay um, where he talked about two sort of forms of the church, you know, modalities, which are like the form of the church, which anyone can come along. And they talked about sodalities, which are almost like these, these you know, like the, the Catholic orders, like the Franciscans or the Jesuits or the parachurch organizations where there was a higher bar. Mm. And, you know, the debate has been like, what is the church? Which one is it? You know, do they, are they two? Are they brought together? And in some ways, Wesley melded them together. And I wonder if that's partially where we're going in the future that, um, you know, it, it's return, bringing those things back together a little bit where, yes, you do have the sort of wide open door and maybe Sunday is really open to bunches of people. But then within that, there's a remnant going yes. deeper. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's the remnant. Church. So often when we talk about remnant church, I'm not saying your whole Sunday service and everything is the remnant because anyone's going to rock in, you know. Um but actually creating remnants within the church. And this mm-hmm. was this was Luther's sort of model of renewal, the, the little church within the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jesus. Jesus' model as well. Yes. Yeah. Who Luther may have followed. <laughs> I think that might be correct. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, so encouraging and so um helpful, I guess, in framing perhaps what some next steps might be for churches in many contexts. Um, in looking at, reviewing, uh, considering what not not programs but structures mm. and environments um, could be created to foster deeper discipleship. Mm. Um, yeah, people who are sold out for the gospel mm. um, and willing to live that mm. in um, yeah communities across the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I just offer a pastoral world Please. to end? Um, I think I think you know we've just talked about a theory, but I think you know I'm, I'm acutely aware that many people listening, this is very real, mm. and for them, this is a theory and it's an explanation. But also, there's very real names, <laughs> and uh, the email that came in about people, you know, experiencing that backlash through discipleship or experiencing that backlash. Um, Personally, um, it's a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, um, you know, I pray a lot for the listeners of Rebuilders and, um, you know, I know that there's people out there who've who've gone through some really difficult stuff with that. Mm. Um, So just to know, I think God hears that pain. It's often very silent and often, you know, many people listen to are a leader and often that's a pain that can be born in isolation. Mm. Uh, But you're not alone. This is this, uh, as our email said, you know, they're seeing this in people all across the country. Many people are experiencing this, but, you know, not necessarily anyone's going to put up on Instagram or, <laughs> you, know, you know, talk about it, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's relational, it's connected to people. Um, and, and I think that the, the second thing of um, the sense of trying to build stuff when there's really weak ties is also really tough. And, uh, I know lots of people feel tired because in a in a neoliberal environment where there's a constant turnover of people, in a big mm. city where there's turnover of people every couple of years, that's really tough. And I think, you know, if you're a planter, if you're a pastor, you can get to the point where maybe you can go on for a few years and you're like, I've seen two or three turnovers here and you can start to switch off a little bit and you can go into your shell. Um, but I just think, uh, you know, I just wanted to say like I think, uh, you know, God hears that. Uh, that's a reality for many others. 
the devil will come and constantly want to isolate leaders to pick them off. Mm. And I think one of the scripts of the devil who comes in as accuser um, comes through the accusatory words of people who can often have backlash and that combined with isolation can be a really difficult thing. Uh, but I think in the midst of that, there's also that an invitation to remember Jesus in the wilderness Remembering the wilderness, uh, remember him going to the quiet spaces and the place of what could have been isolation actually became the place of um, restoration mm -hmm. and communion. And, you know, I think about Elijah as well after he had his battle and, and victory over the prophets of Baal, but then he found himself running scared, um, you know, under the tree sort of in, in, in the wilderness. And, you know, there was that classic uh, sort of encouragement just, you know, to just rest and take his time. So I, I just have a sense. I'm just sort of speaking uh, almost my pastoral words become a bit of a word, but I just think there's some people out there who perhaps have been through a season where you've, you've experienced this backlash, you're feeling isolation, and weirdly through a podcast, um, my hope is that you hear the word of God that um, it's okay to rest and um, but not to find yourself picked off because there are others in the universal church of God who are in a similar place and God's going to use this to build something and uh, my prayer is that he will sustain you and protect you, give you the resilience to go forward and that renewal comes after crisis and that the seeds of renewal are being laid at the moment for you. Yeah. Amen. 